Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. What's up, church? How we doing? <laughs> yeah, that good, huh? Extra hour of sleep does us all a little bit of good. Is that right? Yeah. I woke up feeling real good this morning. I was like, extra hour? Uh, thank you. Praise the Lord. Let's go to church this morning. Um, hey, if you're just joining us, you haven't been with us maybe for the last several weeks, we have been going through a series in the book of Acts. Uh, we are actually nearing the last couple weeks of that uh, series that we'll be going through. And so today, primarily, where we're going to be is Acts 19. It's going to take us just a little bit of time to get there. But if you have your Bible, you can grab that open on up. Acts 19 is where we're going to be. My first question this morning for everyone in the room is, have you ever had what you could just basically describe as uh, expectation dissatisfaction? Like, have you ever been dissatisfied with where somebody set your expectations and where it actually came through at? There's probably a whole sermon that we could do here that I think the key to happiness in life really is expectations management. I think you can make a lot of people happy just by underselling what you're going to do and then overperforming. I think it's really that simple. Joy comes from the Lord for sure. Happiness, I think, is that easy, okay? So, I mean, like, my brother's kind of the worst at this. He's not here, so I can't roast him that well. Or I can maybe roast him better, depending on how you look at it. But he's kind of the worst with, like, recommending movies. He's like, oh, my gosh, dude, Avatar 2, it'll, it'll change your life, bro. Like, you got to... I, I watched it, you know, and I was like, sure, like, it's whatever. Like, it's the same as the first one, you know what I mean? Like, it's not, it's not different. Have you had that, though? Have you had someone sell a restaurant to you where they're like, no, this, this place, like the thing, what you have there, it, it, it's so good. And then you go and you're like, mediocre, like at best, but thank you. I just really think that husbands in the room, this is for free. Like if you just want to make your wife love you so much, tell her you're going to be home at six, show up at five. <laughs> Give yourself, I mean, right? Like, and ladies, I'm not trying to like demean you or anything like that. I'm just saying it really is that simple. Like say, hey, I'm, I'm probably not going to be home until seven o'clock tonight show up at 6.30 and all of a sudden you're a hero, right? And women, that's like, all you want is to know actually when your husband's gonna be home, right? Like that's all you really care about is just to have some sort of a plan for the evening. I think so much of what's going on in the New Testament that we don't read specifically in any given passage, but what's felt all over is this expectations management that is really having a hard time for the Jewish people to grasp who the Messiah actually is. I don't have all the time to set this up, but in order to read Acts like 19, 18, 19 through 23 well, Paul's missionary journey, another missionary journey that he goes on, where he's just planting church after church, city after city, encountering story after story. What you read is, is all of this sort of frustration and angst that's happening from the Jewish community. And if you don't understand what's happening with kingdom theology or kingdom understanding, then you you might ask yourself the question, like, why are these Jewish people so hard to convince? I, I remember as an early Christian thinking to myself, okay, I read the Old Testament, Jewish people, they have all these rules. They have this list of things that they have to do. They have this dietary restrictions, these things they have to do to their body. And it seems like so hard to be a Jewish person. Jesus comes on the scene and he's like, it's grace and it's mercy. The law was given to you just to reveal the fact that you need a savior. I'm him. It's all grace. I'm gonna lavish my grace upon you. And that's how you're saved. And I'm like, that sounds like really good news, doesn't it? And yet the Jewish people have a hard time receiving Jesus as the Messiah. And the reason is, if you don't have the biblical kind of framework to think through it, is that Jewish people throughout the whole Old Testament are waiting. They're waiting for this anticipated Messiah, 
a savior king who would come back into the world to establish his rule and his reign and his kingdom here on earth. The problem and the frustration for the Jewish people is that they thought that that inauguration of the kingdom was going to be immediate and swift. But really what theologians now explain is that we live in the already not yet of the kingdom. So is Jesus the king who was the long anticipated and awaited Messiah for Israel? Yes. Yes. Did he inaugurate his kingdom to the full right away? No. So even as we read through the book of Acts, things that would have represented this present evil age, the age before the Messiah, the king came, death, sickness, disease, uh, strife between relationships, uh, unmet reconciliation between humans and God, all these things that marked this present evil age or the age before Christ. Now, when Jesus comes, do we have resurrection? Yeah. Several stories, even throughout Acts, of of resurrection power moving in God's people. I'm not just even talking spiritual resurrection. I'm talking literal, physical resurrection. But is everyone resurrected? No. Are people healed? Are the lame told to get up and walk? And does it happen? Yes. Is Is that the same thing as we would understand it? As Jesus saying, pray, my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes. But does every sick person get healed that we know of? No, absolutely not. And so what we have is this already not yet that we understand today, but the expectations that the Jewish people would have had is that like when we, when we read the story of Peter pulling out his sword quickly to cut off the guard's ears, they're trying to arrest Jesus. We read that as almost an impulsive self-defense mechanism. But really, I wonder if Peter's thinking, this is the Messiah, this is the King. And so Rome is done. Rome is gone. It is the now, it is Israel established, reestablished back to who they were meant to be. This is the beginning of the kingdom right here. He thinks that it's, it's full force for the kingdom. And really, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. See, we have to go back to Jesus's teaching to really think about what the kingdom is. Jesus talked about the kingdom probably more than any other topic that he talked about at all. Kingdom of God's like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a, a, a sower walking along a path. The kingdom of God is like a pearl. The kingdom of God is like leaven in a, in a loaf of bread. He teaches all about the kingdom. And yet we still have this hard time understanding, even today, I would say, that the kingdom of God is already and not yet. There's a tension as Christians that we fall into. We maybe fall into a few different ditches when it comes to thinking about the kingdom of God or Jesus's rule and reign on his throne, putting things back together to the way they were meant to be. And the ditches that we can fall into is what you could call, theologians would call it an over-realized eschatology or, 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 a, or a false sense of waiting for the end times to be now. So we're waiting and longing for the day when Jesus puts all the wrong things and he turns them down and makes them right. Read Isaiah chapter 11, where the wolf and the lamb are lying down together. The children, is put, they're putting their hands right above the snake's den and nothing bad is happening. It's this wild imagery of peace. And sometimes when we have this misunderstanding of the kingdom, a ditch we can fall into as the church is saying, well, that, that's available here and now. And so everything good should happen right now. This is where you get prosperity teaching that comes from this, that you, you shouldn't be sick at all. So we're gonna pray in Jesus' name that you wouldn't be sick anymore right now and it should happen. And if it doesn't happen, Well, and that's some sort of sin thing. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's what's going on. But maybe we're just living in the not yet. That some of these things can happen and we should contend for them. But maybe we have to be patient because not all of them have happened yet. Does that make sense? Another ditch we can fall into is is failing to acknowledge the already of the already not yet. 
We can see people who are sick and we just go and we pray and we go, I just pray that whatever God wills would be done. Well, come on, we know what God wills. We know that what, we know what God wants, what he desires is that people would be set right but in their relationship with God. We know that God desires healing. And so we pray and we contend. If I show up and I'm praying for you, I'm not gonna pray. Well, you know, you know, Bill, whatever happens, happens here and the Lord knows and he's sovereign and okay. No, I'm gonna contend that it would be God, the way that it is in heaven is that Bill's not sick anymore. He's, he's doing everything the way that he was made to do in the image of God. He's free of sickness, free of disease, free of everything that entangles him. And so I'm gonna ask and pray right now that there'd be breakthrough in Jesus' name, right? So we can't act like the kingdom hasn't already begun because it has. So there's an already, there's a not yet. And then I think there's probably just a cultural category that we live in right now where we really desire after things like justice and God's righteousness and his, and, his, and his goodness. We want those things to happen now, but we contend for those things apart from the king. Don't you feel this in kind of the world we live in right now? Where we want, we want there to be justice and equity and fairness. And we want all these things to go in right order with the kind, the kind nature that we know to be true about who God is. But so many people pursue those things detached from the reigning rulership of Lord Jesus. So here's how we could say this third one. Like you don't get the kingdom without the king. So if I'm gonna contend for things to happen in a just way, I better be doing that through a lens in which Jesus looks at the world through. Because you don't get the kingdom without the king. You don't get the good gifts without the gift giver. Does that make sense? So all of that now imported back into Acts. The reason I bring it up, and the re here, as the students come back in, can I just like thumbs up, thumbs down? How we do on food out there? Do we bury the elementary schoolers or what? Yeah, that's always the plan. All right, good job. Thank you guys for doing that. I appreciate that. Um, parachuting now back into Acts. The reason the kingdom matters is because this is the kingdom spreading now throughout the world. It's not just the growth of the church, although that is what's happening. It's also the rewriting or the reordering of everything to be falling back into Jesus's reign and rule. It's the spreading of the kingdom. And so as you read through these verses, I'm gonna shotgun through just a few quickly. Acts 18, 23, after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia and Phrygia and sending all the disciples, Acts 19, 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Acts 19.10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia, don't think Asia like uh, China, Japan, those weren't, those weren't countries yet. This is like Turkey, okay? All the residents of Asia are hearing the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Acts 20, verse one and two, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through these regions, he had given them much encouragement and he came to Greece. Acts 20, verse six. But he sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas, where he stayed for seven days. Acts 21, seven through eight. When he had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, a silent P, like in pterodactyl, right? <laughs> and we greeted the brothers. And hey, Listen, it's hard for a PE degree guy up here sometimes trying to read these words in front of you guys. Stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered through the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. So you, as you read through these several chapters, 
Paul is just in one place to the next, planting churches, seeing people reconciled to God, bringing the people who have been reconciled to God together into communities, into churches, where they're worshiping the Lord, sitting under the apostles' teaching now, and they're continuing the mission of the church to receive power and be a witness. This has always been the mission of the church. This is always the goal of the kingdom. Just as it's set for us in Genesis chapter one, that we are created in the image of God. In the image of God means, means that we are created to be in his likeness, to represent God, to be his viceroys in the kingdom of God. So we can't just think of God as our homeboy in heaven. No, he's actually a reigning and ruling king of all kings. And so what sin is, is not just me misbehaving from time to time, but it's also treason against the most high king. And that's what happens in the Garden of Eden. Treason is committed on behalf of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, and they are banished from the garden, kicked out, and God write their promises. One day I'm going to set this thing back right. Israel goes, Israel again. What did Israel, what were they supposed to do? Follow after God as their king. But what did they do? They wanted a king in their own eyes. Every other nation had a king. This is the book of Judges over and over and over again. It's like rather than just see God as their own king, they wanted to put a human being in that place. Newsflash, human beings will always let us down in that, in that position, won't they? And so what's happening in the book of Acts is the spreading of the kingdom where people are experiencing reconciliation to the Father. And now you have the, the beginning and the opening of the floodgates of God's kingdom pouring forth all over the earth. Already it's happened and not yet is it complete? And let me just give two notes about the kingdom before we then parachute into one of these stories to ask ourselves the question, well, what does God's kingdom look like in a city when it pours out? It's great to know that Paul went around and established all these different churches in all these cities, but what about when God pours out his presence in one city? Well, that's where we'll go, but I want to say two more things about the kingdom before we get there. When Christians have best understood kingdom theology and our role in the kingdom, not in a way that we sit back and wait to one day go to heaven, but we contend and we long to bring heaven to earth. And we see that as the role that we are meant to play as the church following after Jesus Christ. That is when the most profound things have happened on the planet for human beings. So you have, you have slavery, guys like William Wilberforce leading the charge in Europe to undo what colonial slavery did in treating human beings as commodities to be bought and traded on a market. That, that was Christians that pushed the ball forward to see that people were made in the image of God and so we should not be buying and selling them as less than people. If you want to talk about healthcare, why is it that all of these, church, all of these uh, hospitals, older hospitals around, all start with a saint? Well, it's because the church, you can knock the Catholic church if you want to, we might agree on some different things, but the Catholic church was so pressed to create a system of healthcare that was available for all sorts of people that you have all of these different hospitals that are created by saints or that are reflected by the values of saints so that we would care for people. The healthcare system we have today is in large part due to the church understanding that we are to care for the least of these. What about edu education? If you look at the main like pillar, Ivy League schools, if you research their history, they almost all have Christian origins to them because it was Christians with a right worldview of how the kingdom works that said, no, education is one of the best doorways that we can give to our people to bring about cultural renewal that we see as an imperative with our theology. It should not be that the church has the luxury to sit back and watch the world does whatever the world wants to do. 
No, we should step into the fringe and the mess of the world while we contend to bring heaven to earth. And when the church gets that right, it's when the most spectacular things happen. Now, another note about the kingdom. That doesn't mean that we as the church take a sideline to human institutions or human systems like politics. So let me just give a little plug here real quick. This is not us going all weird on political things, but I do think my job as a pastor is not to teach you who to vote for specifically, but my job as a pastor, pastor is to teach you how to think about how to live out your faith in the, in the world we're living in today. So we can talk about all we want to talk about in 2024, and we will talk about it, what to think about, how to think as a national election comes our way, and is this going to get all spicy and crazy and fun again, right? Do you remember 2020, how awesome that was? <laughs> it was actually, it was really great at this church. I, was, I, was, I inherited a really mature, wonderful group of people. And so it was easy to talk through 2020 with, with you guys. And at times in a national election, I think what we can do is we can take a seat back or we can sit back a little bit because we go, well, my vote doesn't really matter that much because it's just cast in this sea of other votes. And, and I'm not here to argue about that. We'll argue about that next year, right? What I want to what I want to just impress on you today is that there is absolutely no way that you should sit out of a local election. Do you realize that a few years back, the mayoral race in our city, which was between someone who has been outspoken about not loving the church and someone who does love the church. And so I, you can look at all the different things and all the different policies that they care about. Those do matter because policies impact people. That's why we should care about local politics. And that race was decided by less than 300 votes. So your vote absolutely matters, especially in these local elections. Go out and contend for how our school board is run. Go out and contend for who helps run our county, who helps run our city. Care about these things because those people that we vote for, the Bible is never going to paint a picture for us to be detached from politics. No, the Bible would say just keep pol politics in the sphere that they should be in and don't let them grow past what they're supposed to be. In other words, don't let them surpass Jesus's worth. If you think about Caden's awesome sermon from last week, don't let politics tip the scale away from Jesus in the attention of your heart. That's the message about politics. So here, I'm just begging you, church, the election, the vote, all has to be turned in by this Tuesday. Don't sit this one out. Research the people, look at the people, understand what's going on and go vote. Like beyond just what people have fought for and, and died for, given their life for, sacrificed for, so that we have this right to vote, it also just, it makes an impact, especially with these local elections, all right? So those are my two notes about the kingdom. Back now into Acts. Because I don't, I don't want to just look at and observe, okay, this is really cool what happened in the book of Acts. Look at how many people came to faith. I want to go, no, what happens when the presence of God, when there's something that pours out and it happens in a specific city? And I think Ephesus is a really great case study for the church to look at. So now, Acts 19, like I said, we would get there. Open on up to Acts chapter 19. It's a crazy story. Paul shows up in Ephesus and he's just walking in such healing anointing that people are literally taking his clothes and using the residual anointing or whatever it is that's technically going on there to heal people. That's, that's pretty awesome, isn't it? It's pretty crazy to think about some guy who's just walking that closely in Christ that he's just so abiding with Jesus that like even the clothes have something stuck on them still that can be used to help bless other people in the world. And so what happens is Paul's doing his thing. People are getting healed. And these seven sons of Sceva are observing. 
And I, like, if you know me, you know, like I'm not passing this story in Acts. It is my favorite story, probably in the whole Bible because it's hilarious, okay? Acts, starting in verse 13, chapter 19, verse 13. So some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, so let's just, let's just hold on there and just acknowledge <laughs> what a fun occupation that would be. What do you do for work? Ah, uh, you know, I travel around and I exercise demons out of different people, different cities, you know, whatever, whatever the job demands. I'm on the road. Work's got me on the road, right? You know, just got to go deliver all these people from their demonic oppression. Itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Notice they're not using a personal appeal to what Jesus has done, but they're saying, hey, the name of Jesus that Paul's using, like it's clearly working for that guy. He doesn't have to be present. You just need like, you know, his day old laundry and that'll work. So like that guy, according to that guy, they're talking to demons. They're saying, come on out. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirits, they encountered this man they're praying over him and, and the evil spirit manifests, okay? I don't know in your imagination what that's looking like. I've, I've seen that happen at different times. That, like that can look a certain way. And he says, Jesus, I know, check this line. Jesus, I know, Paul, I recognize. I've heard of Paul, but who are you? Let me just submit this right here. I think there's a lot more going on in the demonic than we as Western enlightened thinkers ever want to give credit to. And so somehow the demonic is communicating. They're like, oh, we know Jesus. And Paul's messing us up. He's like, you know, uh, he, he's doing a number on some battalions that we have going on in this area right here. But who the heck are you? Right? And what happens? The man in whom was the evil spirit left on them. How many? The seven sons of Sceva, like what, whatever, that, whatever that law firm is called. Sceva, 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 right? <laughs> Masters them all. How much so? Overpowered them so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I don't know why the Bible has to include naked. I'm just assuming if you lost a fight where you lost all your clothes, you're probably also wounded. <laughs> I don't know, like, I don't know if you've been in a fight. I really haven't been in a fight. I'm not that kind of guy, but I just would imagine that if you're in a fight and at some point you start losing clothing, don't you just tap out? Like, aren't you just like, this is over. I've lost. Like, this is a real story in your Bible, guys. There, there are these seven Jewish boys, prim, proper Jewish boys going out on their, you know, just another day's work. Oh, who's the 10 o'clock appointment? It's Dave. Dave's, you know, let's, let's go talk to Dave. Dave manifests, beats the crap out of all of them. And what happens? Of course, you know, like, just like you would expect if something like this happens, this becomes known to all the residents of Ephesus. Everyone's talking about this. Both Jews, Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. I would submit to you this morning that the there's a lot of humor in the Bible if you would just look for it a little bit. But I also think that there is power in invoking the name of Jesus and using the name of Jesus versus doing something in the name of Jesus. So I, uh, cards on the table, I'm going to win some of you right now and I'm going to lose some of you right now. And that's okay. It's a pre-calculated risk. I've already determined this is what I want to do. I, I hate Halloween. I just do. Um, and I'm not against you. I don't think it's sinful if you dress your kids up in whatever little costume and go trick-or-treating, do your thing. I just, I hate that I have to drive past my neighbor's house that has like heads floating, you know, people hung, caskets in blood. And, go, and I just, I hate it. I'm not about it. Uh, so much so, Katie and I, we got a way to do a little, we always do in the fall, a little time to just pray for the church, pray over our family, seek some direction. Really, if, if you want a picture of what it's like leading this church, it's a lot of just like, Jesus, 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 please help us. Thank you. Amen. Right? So that's, we were doing that. We we're doing that for like two days. 
And uh, we went down to Manitou Springs. You guys familiar with Manitou Springs? Um, I've developed this thing when I'm driving around and I, I shoot a Jesus bazooka or throw a Jesus grenade at things that just gross me out, right? So we're going past a chakra healing energy store, whatever. There's a lot of that going on in Manitou right now. Nothing against if you're from Manitou, I'm sorry, but the city's got some weird spiritual things going on that are demonic for sure. But I, so I'll, you know, we'll be driving the car and I'll just be like, Jesus, Jesus, right? I just picture just blowing the name of Jesus up all over the place. It's one of the stupid things that I do. Okay, I'm a pastor. I'm sorry to like have disappointed you, but that's how lame I really am. Um, and I was reading this verse and I was thinking about that. And I was thinking, you know why the seven sons of Sceva got, got totally kicked in this fight? It's because they were trying to do something with the name of Jesus, which let's admit that's still powerful. So me shooting my stupid little Jesus grenade that's something, actually. It's not nothing. It's powerful. But do you know how much more, more powerful it is to be doing something in the name of Jesus? Here's what I mean. Paul was walking in Christ. If you actually want to go back and read the book of Ephesians, when he is encouraging this church in Ephesus that we're reading about today, you know what phrase shows up all the time? In Christ. In Christ. The people who have received their new heavenly identity, have received the washing, the righteousness of Christ, have received their adoption into God's family, stand on that boldness and confidence, and are empowered and indwelt by the Spirit of God. Those are the people that are effective against the kingdom of darkness. Like you want to mess up Satan and his plans? Be in Christ. Be in Christ. Don't just use the name of Jesus. You can show up to church, not really have any sort of abiding things going on in your life where you're spending time with the presence of God, reading about God, studying about who God is, praying to God, communing with him personally, and you can still invoke the name of Jesus. And it still is powerful, but so much more powerful is it to have somebody who knows, who knows, who knows who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for them. And they are not just hearing about Christ, talking about Christ, but they are personally in Christ. That's the difference between Paul and the seven sons of Sceva. Paul was in Christ. These guys knew of Christ. And those two things are different, church. So this crazy event happens. Naked guys running around everywhere, right? Seven of them to be exact. But it says, fear fell upon the whole region and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices and a number of those who had practiced magic and, brought, and, and arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver or tens of millions of dollars in today's worth. And so Asbury was a cool moment that we had as a nation. I think there's a lot of beautiful, genuine things there, but it's good to know that when something that we want to call revival is happening, here's what marks it in the book of Ephesus. You have, you have a reverent awe that falls in the community. They're extolling the name of Jesus. So the focus is not necessarily even the location. The focus is not necessarily the people or the leaders. The focus is Jesus. His name's being lifted up. This is how we're gonna, this is how we're gonna look for revival in our day. There, there is reverence that falls in the people. And then what else happens? Confessing and divulging of their practices. There will always be confession and repentance that comes alongside with any sort of revival that's going on. That's what's going on here in Ephesus. There's this crazy event. Fear falls on everybody. So there's this reverent awe towards God. They're extolling the name of Jesus. And then all these believers who are kind of apparently living with this mixed view of what it looked like to be a Christian, where they were believing in Jesus, but they also still kind of kept their little silver idols that they'd built up or bought from Demetrius at one point. They're still hanging out with those things. But this is the compelling moment for them to say, I'm going to turn away from that 
lifestyle fully. I'm going to commit myself to Jesus and we're going to burn all that stuff that I used to use to practice magic. And so they have this huge, like just idol killing festival. And, and so much so that the economy that was in Ephesus that relied, what you got to realize is Ephesus is like this cultural powerhouse in its day. It'd be the equivalent of Los Angeles, Manhattan, some of these big cities where there's all sorts of economy, there's all sorts of commerce going on. And they're saying this whole part of the economy is now collapsing because of these Christians who refuse to participate in this idol worship. And so the silversmiths all start to freak out. It says, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There was a man named Demetrius in verse 24 and 25. He's a silversmith who made silver shrines to Artemis. Artemis is the goddess that is worshiped at the city center in Ephesus. There's a meteorite that has fallen. They've carved some image of Artemis and she was the protector and the promiser for all the good things to happen in the city. They were making sacrifices to her, worshiping her, and they brought no little business to the craftsmen. And so these he gathered together. He gathers the craftsmen together with the workmen in similar trades and says, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth and see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And so right off the bat, I don't think anyone, I'm not, I don't think anyone in this room would have like a little Buddha sitting on our shelf that we're, you know, making sacrifices to or worshiping um, for sure. And at the same time, you kind of go, man, aren't these just primitive people that we're talking about that they're just worshiping some sort of graven image? Um, Yeah, it's different today for sure. And how many conversations have you heard that start with something like, well, my God would never blink. Well, I could just never imagine God doing this. And, And the truth of the matter is, I don't want to learn about the God of your emotions. I don't want to learn about the God that you think or cannot think of existing. I want to learn about the God who has revealed himself in scripture. So, so yes, we still make God in our own image. We still make a God with our own hands or with our own ima- imagination. And, and the lie would be to follow after this God that somebody else just can't imagine thinking, no, I don't, I don't want someone who has been created by your three and a half pound brain. I want to follow the one who opened his mouth and the universe fell out. Like we're different in that way. And so this still happens today where we give our worship over to man-made gods because people are saying, well, God would never. Well, okay, maybe he would never, but let's go to where he has revealed the truth to us to see if he would never. So you have these silversmiths. They're all worked up into a tizzy because their economy's collapsing because the Christians are making such a big deal that, that nobody's buying these silver worshiping little things to, to put in their shrines and to worship. It says some of them, they all gathered, they all get together. Um, in Ephesus is the, the largest ancient amphitheater that seats probably about 20,000 people, over 20,000 people. And this is where Demetrius decides to have his little revolutionary party, right? He starts gathering people and all of a sudden the place is full and everyone's shouting all sorts of which different directions because they've, they're so worked up about Artemis being dishonored in this way. And, and it says, now some cried out one thing. So it's like, you know, half the stadium's like, Arda. And the other half's like, miss. And they're just crying out all this different stuff, right? <laughs> For the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they'd even gotten together. <laughs> Golly, isn't that just true of like riding mentality? They're just like, yeah. And it's like, why are you here? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> but ah, that's what's happening. They're also fired up. And what's happening in this moment is idolatry is being confronted in a way 
that is making people mad. And that's the same thing that happens today. See, we, we read these stories and we think we're so far pr progressed past these kinds of people until you actually read into the gaps and you realize that we're the ex exact same kind of people. An idol, really, maybe you don't have some silver shrine that you're sacrificing to or worshiping in your house. You probably don't. But again, an idol would be anything that you have counted on for joy or, or for security that is apart from God. Let me say that again. An idol is anything that you've gone to to give you joy or anything that you've gone to to give you security that is not Jesus. And so when we put it in that category, we have idols even all over this room. Right? So I don't know if you've told yourself that until my family picture on my wall looks a certain way, like I, I'm not gonna be as happy as I want to be. Some of you think you're just a relationship away from finally being, like finally having some joy in your life, finally having some security in who you are as a person. For others of you, it's, it's a number in the bank account. Until it looks like this, I'm not gonna be secure. Market's doing this and you, and you feel that security getting tugged on just a little bit. For, for others of you, it, it's, it's, it, it's, it's so off. Like that, if you think about like, that's why like foster care or adoption sometimes is like ruining something. And it's not because you're really afraid of the work. It's because you're afraid that it's gonna ruin your perfect little picture of what a family you thought it would look like. Right? You're like, well, this is where I think we just, we, get, we read back in time and we look at these stories and we're like, yeah, but they like sacrificed their children to idols. And I'm like, yeah, that's crazy to read about, isn't it? And at the same time, we have people that are like, man, well, I'm just gonna, I just gotta be at the business a little bit longer tonight. And you're continually sacrificing your family for the sake of comfort and security for the income that you think is derived from that job. Now, in no way am I saying that you shouldn't work hard for your family. You absolutely should. But if you're continually at the office until the 19th hour of the night, missing your kids, you are sacrificing your kids to a version of success that the Bible does not define as successful. And, and maybe you're doing it under the guise of like, well, I just need to provide security and comfort for my family. But maybe if you were able to be really honest today, you just actually want to have the sense of accomplishment that you built the company up to that size. I mean, go into any different category you want to. We have idols. That, I mean, you're going to talk you're going to talk about lust. You're going to talk about power. You're going to talk about comfort. And those are going to be your main ones right there. And the reason that it invokes this huge response back in Ephesus is the same reason that it invokes such a response in us today. Even right now, you're probably like, hey, don't come after my, don't come after my thing. Le leave my money out of this, right? I'm not, listen, there's no plate being passed today, right? I'm not after your money. I, I want Jesus to do a work in your heart. But the, we have such an inflammatory response because that which we've given our allegiance to, that thing that we've aligned ourselves with in the, for, that we've decided this is what it's going to take for my kingdom to work is the same thing that the king of all kings is usually coming after. And it usually is the places where it invokes that kind of defensive response in you. So go to the moment that you were most anxious recently and what was that thing tied to? And that's probably where you have an idol. That's probably where you've given your sense of joy or comfort over to something that isn't Jesus. Go to that last really defensive response you had, the last time you got really, really angry, and that's probably attached somewhere to some sense of idolatry. That's just, that's just how this works. And the idol is always going to be de demanding more than you could ever feed to it. This is what's crazy. Like the reason that some 
people struggle with anorexia or bulimia or eating disorders is, is probably because they are already beautiful. Have you thought about this? And they put an idol on that beauty. And so that idol, even though they're already beautiful, even though they're already there, they, they have to keep feeding that idol to try to keep, and it will continue to rob from them the joy that God intends to give to them. And so here's the reality is we've all, we've all messed this up. I, you read through Israel's story. This is one of the verses that I think helped me realize in the Old Testament. Because you read it, you read the Old Testament, right? And you're just like, how dumb are these people? Do you ever, do you ever feel like that? I, you know, I, I know it's kind of like almost blasphemous to say that right now, right? Because everything that's going on in Israel. But I'm just like, you read through the story and you're like, God laid it out so clear for them. And, and then they just kept messing up at every turn, you know? And then at some point in your walk with Jesus, you start reading Israel's story and you're like, oh my gosh, it's not that they're so dumb. It's that I'm so dumb. <laughs> and one, this was one of the verses that helped me see that. Jeremiah 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what are the two evils that we still commit to this day? Jesus is readily available for me to abide and be with him anytime I want to, and I neglect the living water consistently. I, I, I miss time in my Bible. I miss time in prayer. And it's so much easier than it is for, for us today than it was for Israel then. Israel had to go through all these certain different things just to get into the presence of God or to get close to the presence of God. We can just go, Holy Spirit, won't you come? Be with me today. Get, I give you this day. Right? We, we can say simple prayers like that and be abiding with Jesus and we neglect the well of living water. And then at the same time, we take our hope and our trust and our security, things that we should just let Jesus go. Okay, God, I know you've got this like you have the American political system under your control. See that one right there? I just, I just got some of you with that one. The economy, whatever's gonna happen with the market, all of my money, it all belongs to you anyways, God. And so yes, I'm gonna tithe. I'm gonna give my money to you. I'm gonna seek opportunities to be generous, even if I don't have a lot of money, because I trust you, God. How ironic that the same dollar bill we carry in our pocket has to remind us in God we trust. And yet so many of us put our trust into that dollar rather than into Jesus. And so we have the same problems. We turn to health. Health, health will be the next big idol of our day. I'm just calling it right now. All of, the, all of the intent and focus that we have on making sure that your body is well taken care of, that you have everything in the right order. For, you're eating all the blueberries and spinach and you're doing weird things in cold water and you're jumping in the sauna and then you're running a billion miles an hour on the treadmill. Although no, not the treadmill anymore. We just, we just walk on the treadmill now and that's good enough. And then we lift weights, we don't lift weights. Like this, this will be the idol of our next day is caring for, especially some of you younger people who are seeing it all the time on Instagram right now. And you're, you're just eating up what Joe Rogan has for breakfast every single day. And I'm just warning you that don't make an idol out of your health because it will fail you at some point. Jesus is the only one who will never fail you. Your health is a broken cistern. Your money is a broken cistern. It cannot hold the living water that God has put inside of you. And so what do we do with this? Let me tell this story. It's probably going to invoke some emotion and it's not my story, but I think it, it paints the picture clearly. Okay. Um, I heard a pastor tell this story one time and uh, pastor's at his office and a, a couple who's been struggling in their marriage comes in and sits down and talk with him. It's a normal week, normal part of his job. They come in, they're having some issues in their marriage. So he starts just what would be a normal counseling session, right? Sitting on the couch in front of him and he's, he's talking with them and he's starting to see some things that are curious. And so he starts to ask the wife some questions. And eventually she actually just, she cracks 
and she acknowledges and admits that she's been having an affair. She's been having an affair and, and she goes so far as to say, I've been having an affair actually since we've been married. And actually it even happened a couple times before we got married. The husband is just blindsided and, he, and he's completely shook to his core and he has no other choice but just kind of storm out of the room for just a second just to gather his thoughts. Or so the pastor thought. Now the pastor's left in this kind of uncomfortable situation where it's just him and her. Husband's disappeared. He's gone for about 30, 40 minutes. So he's starting to kind of talk to her, encourage her, try to see how he can bring some sort of goodness out of this mess because that's what we're all trying to do. So we're trying to take what the enemy meant for evil and we're trying to somehow see God use it for some sense of good. And out of nowhere, the husband just comes right back into the office and he has this box in his hands. Pastor thinks, oh my gosh, this, like, am I getting fired? That would be amazing. Can you just, can I put my stuff in there and I can go and you can stay here? No, it's a box and, and he says, this is, your, this is your wedding dress. And I actually, I want you to put this wedding dress on right now. It's as perfect and as spotless as the day when we first got married. And he's like, and you, you told me you were something then and you were lying, but I want to know today that you still want to be in this relationship with me. And if you're in, then I'm in and we can fix this thing. We can figure it out. And he puts, he takes that white dress, he takes it out of the box and it's, it looks perfect. It's not wrinkly like it would be, right? Just, it's a broken part of the story, broken part of the analogy. Put this perfect white spotless, blemish-free dress on, and that is how I will choose to see you going forward in this relationship. I tell that story because that's how Christ looks at us. Christ is the husband in the story. You and I are the bride. You and I are the one who have consistently forsaken our relationship with him. We have, complete, we have completely given ourselves away at different times, to different idols, to different things that we've, we've turned to this for our trust. We've turned to this for our, our, to give our love to. We've turned to this to put our joy and our security in. Meanwhile, God has been back there going like, I just, I want, I want that. I want to be given that with you. And when we mess up, what he does is he doesn't bring shame. He doesn't heap condemnation. He goes, no, I have called you perfect. I've separated your sin as far as the East is from the West. This is what the cross of Jesus Christ has done. It, it, it has declared you innocent. It doesn't matter what you did before. It doesn't matter what you're doing right now. It doesn't matter what you're going to do. If you come to Jesus and if you give your life over to him, what he's offering to you today is that spotless, blemish-free gown that is fit for a bride. All of us have given ourselves over to different idols, to different forms of worship. But Jesus is offering us consistently his perfect, his perfect righteousness on our account. And then you see beautiful things like in Matthew chapter six, where Jesus is reminding his people through a parable. If you want to go back and read this, especially if you like, if you struggle with anxiety, I would go back and read Matthew chapter six. Because he's saying like, man, there's all these things that cause anxiousness. There's all sorts of different ways that we stumble. And then he makes this promise. But if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all of these things that you're trying to turn to, to put your trust in, all these things that you're giving yourself over to, those things will eventually get added to you. But it's all about seeking first, orienting yourself first towards the kingdom. What happens in Ephesus is a really beautiful case study for a church like ours, I think. Positioned where we're at in the city we're in and the day that we're in today, I wonder what it would look like if all of us in this room bought into the story that I'm a part of the kingdom. Like I, I belong to the king. I'm his. He's my father. He has called me. He has chosen me for such a time as this. I've been reconciled to him. And so what that means is I am, I'm now again able to be his ambassador 
to represent his kingdom in a foreign land in the world we're living in. We walk out of here today and we go, I get to represent Jesus. And as soon as those thoughts of shame, as soon as those thoughts of mistakes creep into your head, you remember that wedding dress analogy. You remember that story. Because it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. That's how God sees you. And that's, that is the cleanliness that you're meant to carry out into the world we're living in. And so as we end today, here's what I want to do. I want to stay seated for just a moment. And if you can, maybe even just close your eyes all around this room. I think first, just me kind of leading you personally through a prayer of just confession of where you've put your trust that isn't Jesus. What have you looked to for joy that isn't Jesus? Family, a future spouse someday, a relationship, money, a certain position in the company. All these things that we frequently will give ourselves over to that aren't Christ. I think just in this moment, as things get highlighted in your mind, as things start to pop in your mind, here's what you can just simply say, God, I just confess that I have turned, I have hewed out a pot to try to hold this water that's cracked and broken. It's never going to hold it. Just confess that sin in, in your own heart. You can whisper it to yourself, but just confess wherever it is. And God, as we just admit our mistakes, as we admit our failures here and now, God, I pray now that we turn our attention toward, towards your broken body and your shed blood on our behalf. God, would we trust in the righteousness that you've given to us, that even though we've made those mistakes, God, you're still right here, ready to enter back into relationship with us. I pray that right now people would just even receive the spirit of adoption who struggle with legalism. I pray that people would receive a spirit of freedom, not of slavery, but would they receive a spirit of freedom from the sin that so easily entangles them? Jesus, I just ask that for people who have struggled with anxiety, they've struggled with depression, frustration, anger, because they've put their trust and their hope in something that's not you. God, I just pray that would be highlighted to them right now so they could break free from that dependency. And would we just shift our trust over to you, Jesus? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you guys go ahead and stand? I'm going to pray now just a prayer to kind of commission us out of this building now. But before I do that, I'd love to invite our prayer team down. Um, I just want to encourage you, if you've been kind of on the fence about talking to the prayer team about something, getting some prayer for something, I, today's your day. Today's your day. These are, these are friends up here, part of our family. They would love to pray with you, whatever it is that you have going on in your life. Maybe it's something I'm talking about today. Maybe it has nothing to do with what I'm talking about today. But come see our prayer team before you leave. Um, if you want to, you can just kind of open your hands up in front of you like this. God, I, I just pray that you would commission us this week. Just like in the book of Acts, where we're seeing that the believers would receive power and then go and be a witness. God, I pray that we would be witnesses in the world we're living in today. Just even looking around all the faces, all the different stories, all the different places that we're going to end up this week, God, it's nothing short of profound and amazing. And so God, rather than just end up at work tomorrow, rather than just end up at, at school or end up uh, around our neighbors tomorrow, God, would we be sent to those places? Would we know that we are full of your Holy Spirit, full of power, 
Would we go knowing that we are completely redeemed, completely purchased back from the kingdom of darkness, Jesus? We've been transferred in the domain of light. Let us carry that light with us in this world that we live in today. Jesus, we love you. We pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen.